Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks so much for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing all right. Had a bad reaction to some lactose-free milk uh, Oh, that's what everyone wants to hear about. (laughs) So I'm lactose intolerant. Yes. So we buy lactose-free milk, and... Our regular brand was sold out at the store, so we got this other brand, and it is not perhaps as lactose-free as I need it to be, but uh, I'm doing fine otherwise. Uh, We treated ourselves and bought a bunch of new Blu-rays yesterday, so I'm still pretty excited and happy about that. Like over half of them being Criterions. Yeah, we got like five new Criterion editions, which is pretty cool, including... um, the uninvited and night of the living dead yes it'll be a few years before we get to (laughs) night of the living dead i think yeah hopefully it won't be like the 11 years that there are between 1957 and 1968 but yeah for the show to get there it's gonna be a while yeah but we're prepared yeah (laughs) how are you doing today sarah just fine yeah been enjoying the weather doing gardening, stick my hands in the dirt. Yeah, you're getting quite a green thumb. Oh, oh God, should I get that checked out? No, yeah, no I don't no. think it's supposed to be green, No, ben. It's, it's fine. It's okay. fine. I thought that was just a really bad blister. No, soon it'll be the rest of you as well. Okay. And then you'll Is that become... how I become the green knight? Oh, I was going to say that's how you become a Gotham City eco-terrorist. Oh. <laughs> uh, I just have the green knight with Dev Patel on my brain fair looks great yeah uh what are we watching today is it going to be as good you think as uh possibly the green knight so although the green knight is not out yet i'm gonna say no <laughs> today sarah we are watching zombies of mora tau okay a movie i had not heard of before we started doing this show mm-hmm. uh so i've never seen it before is Mora Tau a real place? No. Okay. They are in Africa in ah, this movie. And generic Africa. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a made-up place in Africa. And as we've sort of been seeing lately, um, this is yet another movie that just goes like, yeah, voodoo's kind of everywhere, right? Zombies are an everywhere thing, as long as like it's a place that's not predominantly white, right? That being said, West Coast Africa is a more accurate place to be situating voodoo than, like, the Philippines? Yeah, or the Hawaiian Islands in, like, voodoo island. Yeah, but um, it's still still not really how any of this works. Yeah. Because zombies are so, like, specifically tied into Haitian voodoo because they're specifically tied into, like, the aftermath of getting rid of like slavery in Haiti. The process of colonizers and enslavers trying to deculture relies, I don't know if that's a word, uh, reprogram um, the Africans they enslaved. Well, that's where voodoo comes out of for sure. Yeah. Um, zombies sort of come out of like rich white plantation owners needing 
cheap labor that they don't have to pay, but slavery is illegal now, so let's use the living dead. <laughs> um, anyways. If you want like a quick recap of stuff we've talked about with voodoo and zombies in the past, you can listen to episode 200, which is on 1957's Voodoo Island. Um, and if you want kind of the deep dive into the history of voodoo, uh, you can listen to episode 32 on White Zombie. Yeah, none of uh, the rich cultural research that we've done is going to be applicable relevant to zombies of moratau <laughs> this is a movie that's coming to us from sam katzman remember okay. sam katzman how could i forget someone who has cat in their name sure so the last movie we saw from the legendary b-movie producer was the werewolf in 1956 from columbia pictures which had been the bottom half of a double bill with Earth versus the Flying Saucers, which was a Ray Harryhausen movie that was also produced by Katzman. Katzman has, of course, produced a number of films in the interim since we saw The Werewolf, uh, including two different follow-ups to his hit 1956 rock musical, Rock Around the Clock. First, Cha-Cha-Cha Boom, <laughs> and then Don't Knock the Rock. I think it's supposed to be Cha-Cha-Cha Boom. Well, so it, the cha-cha-cha have dashes between them, uh, but the cha-cha-cha, boom. boom. Yeah, exactly. The boom has a space. So <laughs> anyways, uh, cha-cha-cha, boom, uh, <laughs> stars the female lead from Rock Around the Clock and Don't Knock the Rock stars the male lead from uh, Rock Around the Clock. They realize that both these stars have money to their name so we'll double it by having them in their separate vehicles right exactly anyways zombies of moratau <laughs> would be the top half of a double bill with another catsman produced horror flick the man who turned to stone okay continuing columbia pictures rich tradition of sci-fi horror movies whose titles go the man who blah 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 i know of a naming trend that is in our future and i am so excited and it's a very similar trend to this only it's about teenagers oh yeah absolutely it's very soon in our future <laughs> so both zombies of moratau and the man who turned to stone would be released by columbia pictures under the highly ambitious tagline the most shocking horror bill ever shown uh, ever shown mm -hmm. the screenplay for Zombies of Moratau was written by Bernard Gordon, who wrote most of his screenplays under fake names. That's always a good sign. So he was born in 1918, the son of Russian Jewish immigrants, and he got his start in the film industry as a script reader. During the 1940s, he was a union activist and member of the Communist Party. His first produced screenplay was the 1952 boxing movie Flesh and Fury from Universal Pictures, starring a very young Tony Curtis. Ooh. Then came The Lawless Breed in 1953, a Western starring Rock Hudson, also for Universal. Then Universal producer William Olland, uh, who produced the Creature from the Black Lagoon movies, uh, named Gordon in testimony to HUAC. Oh, no. And so Gordon was subpoenaed to appear before the committee, but he was never 
actually called to testify. Nice. Well, unfortunately, this sort of left Gordon in a strange legal limbo because having been subpoenaed, that meant that they could call him to testify at any time. And he could neither like clear his name or, you know, move forward with any, you know, resolution on either side. Right. Exactly. So while Gordon wasn't officially blacklisted, studios avoided hiring him in fear of like that other shoe dropping. Sure. So this is why he wrote under other names. Yes. So Katzman and his co-producer Charles Schneer offered Gordon an under the table deal to write B movies uh, under a pseudonym. So as Raymond T. Marcus, he wrote Earth versus the Flying Saucers. He wrote both halves of this double bill. He wrote Hellcats of the Navy, which is sort of a trivia question answer because it was the only movie that starred both Ronald and Nancy Reagan. And he also wrote uh, Day of the Triffids. Oh. Among uh, many, many others. Day of the Triffids was a book before, though. Okay. So he adapted it. As the blacklist lifted... Uh, Gordon wrote the original film adaptation of The Thin Red Line under his own name in 1963. He produced the film Horror Express, starring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in 1972. And he adapted Margaret Atwood's novel Surfacing in 1981. He passed away in 2007. Okay. Our director this time around is Edward L. Kahn, a veteran of the industry going back to 1917. Have we seen anything from him before? Because I feel like I have memories of going con in uh, past episodes. Yeah, yeah, we have (laughs) seen him. Um, His biggest sort of claim to fame before the 1950s was as the director of the R Gang comedy shorts Mm -hmm. from 1939 to 1943. Um, But the last film we saw from him was 1956's The She Creature. Oh, yes. A very notorious movie. (laughs) The director of photography for this film, Benjamin Klein, uh, was also an industry vet with a career stretching back to 1920. He had shot The Man They Could Not Hang, The Man With Nine Lives, Before I Hang, and uh, both halves of this double bill. So experienced at... Those are Columbia pictures? Those are all Columbia pictures, yeah. Experienced Columbia B-movie cinematographer going way back. The most notable member of the cast of this film is actress Allison Hayes. She was born in 1930 as Mary Jane Hayes. And she was Miss District of Columbia at 18 years old. That's like a beauty present? Yeah, beauty pageant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And while she did not become 1949's Miss America... Uh, She won enough attention as a model to get a contract with Universal Pictures in 1954. She appeared in, like, small supporting roles in a number of larger films until um, she sued Universal due to, like, loss of income due to an injury suffered on set and the outcome of that was that in 1955 she left universal for columbia pictures okay at columbia pictures she played larger roles but in smaller films Mm -hmm. 
and her most famous role today is probably as the title character in 1958's Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought her name was vaguely familiar a little bit, but uh, I guess that must be why. Yeah, so if you've seen Alison Hayes, it's most likely that it's on the poster for Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, a poster which is much more well-known than the movie itself. Mm-hmm. In the 1960s, um, Hayes had a chronic pain illness that was getting worse and worse, um, and it led to her acting career declining because she became really difficult to work with, because she was really ornery, because she was in pain all the time. Um, And the cause of her pain and this illness was unknown because her symptoms were not taken seriously by her doctors. Mm Mm-hmm. So she decided to fucking find out herself what was wrong with her. And she suspected these calcium supplements that she had been taking ever since she had broken an arm falling off of a horse filming Gunslinger for Roger Corman in 1956. So she took these calcium supplements to a toxicologist. And the toxicologist was like, whoa, these are like mostly lead you definitely have like severe lead poisoning oh, no uh so hayes campaigned to the fda to ban this particular supplement um but in 1976 she was diagnosed with leukemia the treatments did not work um her blood got real bad and in 1977 she passed away of leukemia uh days before the fda announced they were making changes in the laws regulating the contents of nutritional supplements. Okay. Is the lead in the supplements connected to her leukemia? Uh, I don't know for sure because I'm not a doctor, but the implication I got researching her was yes. Mm -hmm. In any case, it would not have helped. No. So that's so sad. Yeah, that's that's the sad life of Allison Hayes. Zombies of Mora Tau was released with The Man Who Turned to Stone in March of 1957. The movie was not well received, but modern horror critics acknowledge it as an important stepping stone between the zombies of White Zombie and the zombies of Night of the Living Dead. Oh. Sort of a, a interesting midway point between the two styles okay currently zombies of moratau is available alongside three other sam katzman 1950s sci-fi horror flicks including the werewolf on dvd in the icons of horror sam katzman collection uh and it is also up on our youtube playlist okie doke uh, folks, if you would like to watch along, you can find our YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Zombies of Mora Tau from 1957, directed by Edward L. Kahn. See you on the other side, everybody.
Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching Zombies of Moratau from 1957, directed by Edward L. Kahn. Sarah, maybe I missed it, but I don't remember them saying the words Moratau at all in this movie. Maybe in the beginning when you're first getting oriented, but I don't think so. They yeah. say, like, Africa. We're yeah. in West Africa. We're on the coast of Africa. They say that a lot. And, like, it's weird because Moratau sounds more like a place. Sounds Moratau like a place? More? Moratau. Oh, Moratau. Okay, got it. Oh, my God. Um, no, it sounds more like a, a place... That should be somewhere in, like, Asia. It yeah. It's not a very, like, African-sounding name. Listen, it's all foreign-sounding. Right. To an American audience. I did think of a better, if a little more pretentious, title for the movie a little later. Oh. Uh, which is, like, a quote from that Bible verse in Revelation that's like, And the sea shall give up her dead. That's too long. That's too long, Ben. Anyways, the point is is that, like, it's weird because Moratau isn't a real place and also doesn't sound right, and then they never really mention it. So I don't really know It gets It gets the butts in the seats. I did it? Anyways. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about how the story of this one goes. Sure. Well, it's... I didn't give my first thoughts. You didn't oh, ask me. Oh, I'm sorry. What did you think of this movie? Uh, it was fun. Yeah. It's like Night of the Living Dead meets Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's that to it for sure. I felt it was like if Val Luton, who sort of cares about like characters' backstories and characterizations and like emotions and like, you know, the emotional truths of like horror, produced a movie at Universal Pictures where, like, things have to actually happen. <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, I'll tell the audience what the movie's about. For sure, thank you. The movie is about the zombies of Moratau. Fair. We open with a young woman named Jan, uh, returning after ten years to her great-grandmother Peters's home in, I'm presuming, Moratau, Africa. Mm. Now, her chauffeur, Sam, sees a man in the middle of the road and guns it, just runs this man down. And Jan is like, what the fuck? And Sam's like, that was no man. That was one of them. Your grandmother will explain. He says, like, that wasn't a person, I think, which is more upsetting somehow. Yes, absolutely. Jan is really shocked, and she shares this with her grandmother Peters when she arrives at the house. And grandmother Peters is like, don't be concerned. It was a zombie. And Jan's like, oh, you're still on that voodoo stuff? Come on, grandma. It's been 10 years. You're still on this? I thought that was just, like, scary stories you told me when I was here as a child. But okay. Then we cut to a boat in the bay, or rather a ship that is searching and has located the lost diamonds of the Susan B. Mm -hmm. 
probably no relation to Susan B. Anthony. Since it sunk in the 1890s, I'm gonna guess no. Yeah, but it was named in 1957 with the writing of this movie. Sure, sure. (laughs) But I think it's still a fair bet, no. Now this ship is captained by George Harrison. He got tired of the guitar, and now he's out here on the sea. His wife, Mona, is here, and uh, she has a big crush on their diver named Jeff. And uh, they are also joined on this expedition by a professor, Dr. Eggert, so named because he is an egghead. (laughs) He is not even here for the diamonds of the Susan B. He just wants to know more about the story. He's just here for the research. Mona is here to do some moaning, if you know what I mean. Oof. We learn that this ship, the Susan B., went down after picking up these diamonds from a temple. Raiding a temple, specifically. Yes. And so they've located the wreckage in the bay. As our main crew are in the cabin discussing this, we see a deckhand attacked and killed by a man in the water. They try to shoot off the guy, but he's gone. Um, And the deckhand is killed. So they bring him to shore because they're like, we can't bury him out here i guess no we got to take him to shore i guess yeah i mean burial at sea is a totally normal normal thing normal practice but okay fine whatever you're only like a stone's throw away from the shore anyways might as well yeah and grandmother peters uh had heard the shots and so she is waiting on the shore for them and she explains like no we got to bury him like right now i got the grave ready for you one of the best like sequences in this movie is when these guys like show up and they're like, hey, Mrs. Peters, so you've been living here for like 60 years, huh? And she's like, yep. And they're like, well, we're here on an expedition for the diamonds. And she's like, yeah, you're all going to die. And they're like, how, how do you know that? And she's like, well, let me take you to my backyard. Here's the graves of everyone from the 1904 expedition. Over here, we have the 1908 expedition. This expedition was 1928. And she just like goes down this like line of like every group that's come here to get these diamonds yeah. and how she has them all buried out here in her backyard. Well, like the nearest town is five five hours away. Yeah. But also it's it's very funny. I just love her like tour guide kind of approach to it where it's like and on this side we see the portuguese expedition of (laughs) 1938 they also all died over here we have the first american expedition (laughs) they also all died i've taken the liberty of pre-digging all your graves to save on time this is true she has done that um now it's like nighttime So she invites uh, our main crew folks to stay at her big mansion for the night. And during that time, she also explains a little bit more to Dr. Eckert um, about these expeditions and what she believes has happened. Uh, Because she believes it's zombies. She explains to Dr. Eckert that 60 years ago, in 1897, uh, which is wild to think, like, it makes total sense, but 1957, 60 years ago, was in the 1800s. That's wild to me. Right, and, like, this, like, 80-something-year-old woman was, like, in her 20s in, like, the 1890s. Yeah. Which, like, 
if you think about that, it's like, okay, so she was born in Wild West times, and now here she is alive in, like, Sputnik times. Yeah, it's it's wild. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> yeah, it was, I even did, I confirmed the math with a calculator, huh. just to be sure. In any case, in 1897, the Susan B. went down off this coast. It was captained by her husband, Captain Peters. As they were leaving the temple, ten men died, including the captain. They got turned into zombies to go after the diamonds that they stole. Uh, As a result, the Susan B. ship was scuttled and everyone else died as well. Hearing that her husband was still being seen around the coast of Africa, Grandmother Peters came here, set up a shop, built this house, and discovered, oh, he's not alive. He's a zombie. They are protecting the diamonds. They kill anyone who comes to look for them. And she ultimately wants to end this curse uh, that they seem to be under. So she agrees to help this expedition try to find the diamonds. Because for her, she believes that if they destroy the diamonds, they can end the curse. I don't know why taking the diamonds back to the temple isn't an option that people think about, but fine. You, you got to meet the movie halfway. That's a whole other set, Ben. <laughs> Dr. Eggert is entertaining the idea of this at, uh, from like an academic point of view. The rest of the ship crew and Jan don't really believe this whole thing about zombies. Um, voodoo is dropped a few times as a term, but for the most part, they keep saying zombies. Yeah. It's just sort of like grandmother Peters will be like, yes, so they're all zombies. And Jan will be like, oh, grandma, you don't still believe in that voodoo stuff, do you? And that's about as like much specifics we get. Yeah. Now to try to like confirm what grandmother Peters is saying, Jan and the diver Jeff go to investigate where the chauffeur hit that dude. Um, Now, he's not there. They find remnants of, like, seaweed and what they think is seawater and footprints that show that the dude uh, came from the bay, stood in the road, and then picked himself up and walked back towards the bay. And this is, like, they're like, oh, God, like, I guess... You know, this is confirming a bit of what Grandmother Peters is saying. During this time, we see that the the zombie, who I keep calling Dude, the Dude is hiding out in the forest, in the jungle, watching them, stalking them. And then, right when it's, like, most convenient, he grabs Jan and heads into the jungle. For reasons unclear. <laughs> so Jeff follows him. And tries to get Jan back. They have a bit of a scuffle. And Jeff ends up stabbing Dude in the chest neck area with a knife. And Dude just, you know, walks it off, whatever. Jeff manages to follow Dude to a crypt in the cemetery. All the other zombies are hanging out in coffins. Yeah, <laughs> like they, they're vampires. Yeah, they just like are are in lidless coffins it's like that's just where they go to like rest until like the like someone's after the diamonds instinct is like activated. <laughs> Using a flare gun, um, Jeff is able to, I guess, repel the zombies away from Jan, get her out and get her back to the mansion. 
Yeah. One helpful piece of advice that Grandma Peters has given by this point is that they're afraid of fire. Yes. So it's the next day. We're back on the ship and Jeff is in the old timey dive suit, uh, probably current contemporary day mm-hmm. dive suit um, to dive down and locate the wreckage. And he does so and he spots where the safe is, the safe that holds the diamonds. Um but he is attacked by underwater zombies <laughs> um, who in the scuffle dislocate his hose. Uh, so they manage to get him up, get the zombies off of him because they hold on to him as he comes up. And uh, he, Jeff is in some pretty dire straits right now. So they take him back to grandmother Peters's house to recuperate um, because nearest town is five hours away. That's where the nearest doctor is. So grandmother Peters with her, I guess medical skills of using whiskey <laughs> we is like the closest we have. We don't really know what she gives him. She's like, oh, I'll give him something that'll like get him breathing again. And Mona, who doesn't like Grandma Peters, doesn't like this whole place, just wants the whole team to leave. And is like super jealous of Jan because she's been spending time with Jeff. Mona basically just doesn't like anybody except maybe Jeff. But she's like... We can't let that old witch give this guy anything. Like, how do we know it's not, you know, I don't know, poison or zombie drugs or whatever. And then just like Grandma Peters just comes back with this like drink and she's just like, watch out, it's potent. And like, that's all we ever know what it is. Like, I think you and I were just like joking that it was like a whiskey coffee mix, but we don't really know what she gives him. Like I imagine it's coffee brewed with whiskey instead of water. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That would be something to try. Anyways. So Jeff is recuperating. And as Ben said, Mona has been getting pretty jealous. Um, and Jan is playing nurse basically to Jeff. Um, So Jeff is, you know, getting awake and he is also getting pretty nice and cozy with Jan. And so Mona storms off um, into the night and she is never seen again. (laughs) That's not quite true, but setting the mood, (laughs) I guess. They send out a little expedition of everyone in the house to go and try to go and try to find Mona. Um, they believe that maybe the zombies got her, so they're like, okay, Jeff, take us to where you found the crypt, and we'll go get her. And they do find Mona there, so they manage to grab her and get her back to the mansion, except she seems to be weird. <laughs> when Grandmother Peters sees Mona, she's like, she's dead. Listen, Captain Harrison, she's dead. There's nothing you can do. She's a zombie. She's a zombie. And he's like, no, see, she's she's walking. It's fine. So he tries to, like, put her to bed to recuperate. And they all get woken up in the middle of the night because Mona has grabbed a knife and stabbed another deckhand. Just all these deckhands. I, it's a black and white movie, but they, I'm pretty sure they're wearing red shirts. Sure. They manage to contain Mona in her room using candlesticks. And that's where she stays for now. The next day, Jeff and Captain Harrison go down to the wreck. They are both diving down, and they basically have a plan for Harrison to use the torch to ward off any zombies while Jeff welds open, breaks open the safe using his torch. Yeah, these are these are blow torches. They aren't just like waving around like 
<laughs> like Dungeons and Dragons, like torches underwater. <laughs> just to be clear. So he manages to get the safe open and get a small chest. Um, but the zombies are swarming them. So first Harrison gets up and he has an injured leg, um, but he's okay. And then Jeff manages to get up. But once the chest with the diamonds is up on the boat, zombies are swarming the boat. Yeah, it's like full on like imagine Night of the Living Dead. But, but it's on a, a boat. boat. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, Jeff realizes, okay, these dudes are after the chest that we have. So I'll take it and lure them away so everyone else on the boat can escape. And Captain Harrison is like, no, you won't. You're just trying to take all the diamonds. Um, But his leg is injured, so he can't really do anything about it. (laughs) So Jeff does this plan and manages to get to the shore um, and into Grandmother Peters' house. He shows the chest to Jan and Grandmother Peters. Um, they manage to get the chest open and get the diamonds out, just in time for Captain Harrison and everyone else who was on the boat to arrive. And uh, Captain Harrison demands the chest. Uh, he's waving a gun around. He's like, I'm, I'm changing the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. This deal gets worse all the time. So Harrison grabs the chest. He gets Mona lures her out of the room using the chest because her eyes immediately go to it yeah even though he still thinks she's just like hypnotized or something like he's still not buying that she's a zombie even Mm -hmm. though like all signs point all signs point to zombie and like also like you've seen dead people rise up out of the sea to attack your ship like at this point like are they zombies or are they just like something else is like not a valid question anymore yeah but he's like i'm gonna take her to the doctor But that plan goes awry. Mona kills him. (laughs) (laughs) She grabs the chest and with the other zombies, recede into the forest. Um, And Grandmother Peters is like, they'll be back as soon as they realize that the diamonds aren't in the chest. Mm. Um, So we we have to destroy these diamonds. And Jeff is like, do you know how hard I fucking worked to get these diamonds and how much money they're worth? Are you kidding me? I want to use this to get rich marry jan and we'll just have like the best life ever and you can come to grandma peter's like i'm joining the family it's gonna be great and she's like no you have to destroy them and he's like fooey i'm getting you guys out of here let's go jeff raises a very good point which was something i'd been thinking ever since grandma peter's gave her exposition in act one about you have to destroy the diamonds which is how yeah, they are diamonds. Yeah, like diamonds are not. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'll sell them before they get to me. You know, and it's like, no, they'll hunt you down. No. They'll hunt down every person who has bought one of these diamonds. Like if there's a single diamond in like a tennis bracelet, zombies coming after that person. Honestly, honestly, if I was Jeff, like that would be my plan. You'd be like, listen, I know that they can walk across the Atlantic Ocean at the bottom of the sea to follow me to New York, but that can't be as fast as taking a boat. So we're going to go to New York. I'll sell the diamonds to some jewelry shop. We'll get a bunch of money. That jewelry shop will sell it to a bunch of other people. And then it can just be some different horror movie about like a string of (laughs) weird murders across the East Coast from zombies hunting down rich socialites. Uh, good to know where your morality stands on this. Yeah, it's with getting getting rich and and retiring to a nice, comfortable life with my wife, with no zombies. 
regardless, Jeff is like, you guys can't stay here. So let's get all onto the boat. Get out of here. As they are escaping, Grandmother Peters sees Captain Peters. Now, she has already said, you know, he hasn't aged a day. Um, and it's it's true. He doesn't look aged. He also doesn't look like he's rotting. He, he's just as he ever was. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like crying like, oh, my husband, your soul will never be free. And Jeff goes, oh, fine, <laughs> take your diamonds. Um, he's he's not quite as snot nosed as this, but um, he does give her the diamonds and he's like, OK, destroy them. I my compassion is ignited here. OK. Destroying the diamonds in this case means sort of just plopping them over the side of the boat, like where five, no one will ever find them five meters out from like the shore. Yeah, it's not. It's the thought that counts, Ben. And as soon as uh, Grandmother Peters does this, the zombies go poof. Yes, they they're like Jedi. Their their bodies cease to exist and their clothes just fall to the ground. They're <laughs> the one end. with the force. <laughs> that's that's the end. Oh, Jan and Jeff embrace. Yeah, which you could have guessed. Yeah, yeah. So Ben, I noticed you were making a lot of Star Wars references. Yes. Is there any reason? Do you want to talk about why? Because I learned something. Oh, in yes. Doing, in, in recapping this movie and, and stuff, uh, I looked up who plays Grandmother Peters. Yeah, so Marjorie Eaton is probably the standout of the cast. Like, no one here is doing a bad job. Um, but everyone is just sort of, you know, playing their archetypes. I'm the grumpy capitalist. I'm the egghead. I'm the hero. I'm the good girl. I'm the bad girl. But uh, Marjorie Eaton's doing like a really solid, emotionally believable performance where she's like really putting the effort into selling this story of this like old woman who has a zombie husband um, in a way that like you wouldn't expect in a B movie like this. She's doing a really solid like Maria Uspenskaya, Siliolovsky kind of impression here. That's uh, the woman who's from. Wolfman? Yeah, Maria Uspenskaya is the old lady from Wolfman right. who gives the exposition. Celia Lovsky is a lot of things, but you might remember her best as T'Pau in the Star Trek episode, A Muck oh, Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so like spooky old woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's doing like a really good job of doing that. And I kind of overlooked her when I was like running down the cast of this movie Um, Because, like, she doesn't really have, like, a lot of credits that I think, like, our audience would really, like, identify with. Um, But there are two really cool facts about her. Do you want to, do you want to let the audience in on the the two cool facts, Sarah? Well, she is a painter and photographer as well as an actress, which I just think is, like, neat when people, like, branch out. But her, um... One of her most notable roles, uh, which it was like really cool to see, is she played Emperor Palpatine in the original Empire Strikes Back, um, the physical acting. Yes. She was like the physical version. Wait, he did, he only appears in like a hologram yes. in that one. Yeah. But so, uh, then Ian McDiarmid's voice is put over top. So, so just so we don't get tweets. Um, so she played, yeah, Emperor Palpatine. Before the special editions, actually before the 2004 DVDs, 
and it's her with a chimpanzee's eyes uh, superimposed over her eyes to give her like weird Bug looking, eyes, looking yeah. eyes. And then it's the voice of Clive Revel, mm. who is doing the voice of Emperor Palpatine. Uh, then the role was cast with Ian McDermott, who then like reshot that scene and got put into the movie instead of the chimpanzee Marjorie Eaton and Clive Revel in the DVDs of Empire Strikes Back and all versions going like forward from the DVDs. But super cool. Yeah. It's super cool. Also, when she was a painter, uh, which was when she was much younger, like during the 20s and stuff, she was um, part of this little like group of painting friends with Frida Kahlo. Whoa. And like, I think she lived in the same building. And like, listen. Oh, they they definitely gay. (laughs) They were definitely gay together. Yeah, I was going to say, like, if you were also a female painter who lived in a building with Frida Kahlo and you were friends, uh, that's that's pretty suspect. Yeah. She was also in Mary Poppins. Mm -hmm. Um, She has like some pretty notable roles. Um, So that's pretty cool. And one like little thing that no one's going to care about, but I care about she was in two two episodes of the 1960s show my three sons which i've got three sons which sarah has never seen i've got three sons but the very first time i ever mentioned it to her she made up this jingle for it which is not (laughs) actually the opening credits theme to the show and she has had that made up theme stuck in her head ever since for like two years and it's like all she all she knows about my three sons as a show is a thing about it that she made up but she's always very excited i know that there were three sons (laughs) that's all i need to know ben (laughs) so anyways yeah back to the zombies of moritao (laughs) so yeah marjorie eaton playing grandmother peters she's great Overall, like, I I really enjoyed this movie, and I think it's because it's, like, short and sweet. We don't overstay our welcome at any one location. Um, There's no, like, drawn out, like, now we go to back to this place, and then back to that place, and then back to this place, and then back to that place without any kind of um, plot momentum. I think a big thing that makes the difference in this movie, because I'll agree with you that I think a big strength of this movie is the pacing. It's very well-paced. But I think what's creating that good pacing is the zombies show up early and then Mm -hmm. they are in the movie consistently. Like it's not a thing where we have to wait 45 minutes to see a zombie. It's also not a thing where we get like a zombie in the first five minutes and then have to wait 40 minutes to get zombies again. It's like, no, like a zombie shows up right at the start and we run him over and then the ship comes in and a zombie grabs a deck hand and pulls him under. And then we go to grandma Peter's house and a zombie like, I don't know, gets in the house fucking somehow and threatens <laughs> us until we use a torch to drive him away. And then we go out into the woods and a zombie grabs Jan and we chase him to the crypt full of zombies. And then we go back to that crypt and like we're just we're doing zombie stuff the whole way through. Yeah. It is never really clear why they grab Jan and why they grab Mona and they got to make little zombies, Ben. <laughs> right. Um it's also unclear why Mona becomes a zombie and if that's what they were trying to do with Jan when they grabbed her, but I'm going to talk a bit about that a little later maybe. Okay. Um but yeah, it was just 
really nice to see the movie not dragging its heels and fucking around. Part of that might be that, like, these zombies, because as Sarah said in the plot summary, like, they aren't decayed. Um, They haven't had, like, 60 years of rot on them. They're just, like, preserved. They're just undead. So because we're in black and white, they're a really easy monster special effect to do. We just put them in some old-timey sailor clothes, and, like, maybe they put some dark circles into their eyes or something. Yeah, because Grandmother Peters keeps going, like, look at their eyes. And then we just, like, drench some seaweed on them. Yeah. And now we have zombies. So. Yeah, they walk slow they do like the shambly thing no Mm -hmm. one talks they don't have like their arms out or anything and one thing that i thought was really interesting is are these zombies smart potentially they know how to use tools like a switchblade knife and they can strategize yeah because the dude who um was hit in the road and then goes after Jan and Jeff. He is like waiting for the opportune moment to go out. He's not just like going out to get her. He has a plan. And when he has Jan and is going through the forest, he stops and hides and then attacks Jeff from behind. He leads Jeff into a little mini trap. So it's like, oh, are they like thinking? Do they have a plan? Oh my God. You're totally right. I mean, they don't talk. But they also don't moan. Like, they aren't, yeah. like, going through the movie, like, diamonds. Um, I think what is also interesting is, like, no one's controlling them. Right. That's, like, the major difference from, like, a Haitian zombie. Right. So so this is what I want to mostly dig into, is the way that these zombies are a halfway evolutionary step. They're the missing link between, <laughs> like, white zombie zombies and Night of the Living Dead zombies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, as you say, there's no zombie master here. There's no hunger. There's no witch doctor. There's no Bella Lugosi, like, controlling the zombies and ordering them around. And in the past, that's kind of been, like, a big part of just, like, the definition of a zombie. Yeah. Right? It's, like, what makes a zombie different from other forms of, like, undead creatures. And here we don't have that. And, like, there's a sense that these sailors became zombies after death because the diamonds were cursed. But there's no, like, in-depth lore to this. There's no part where we, like, go to the temple and read an inscription that's like, ah, by the great god Moratau, you are cursed to blah-da-da-da-da. And there's also nothing in Grandma Peter's story that's like, ah, the, like, priests of the temple that they defiled turned them into zombies. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, there's just, there's no people making them zombies there's almost a sense that like the diamonds might have been cursed before they got there and like there was no one at this temple right you know mona seems to become a zombie just because they killed her Mm -hmm. which is like a big difference right between like oh well once you're dead some guy can come to your grave and be like ooga booga and then you rise up like no some zombies killed you so now you're a zombie And it's also, um, if you're not buried right away, presumably with like Christian rites as well. Yeah. Um, because that one, that first deckhand, I don't think he becomes a zombie, but Mona, you know, she was gone for several hours. Yeah. And also like grandma Peters was like, yeah, put her in the ground. And they're like, no, we're going to take her to her room to recover. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because these are still definitely supernatural. Mm hmm zombies because it's like a curse and also because like once we throw the diamonds into the lake 
they poof out of existence, right? So they're definitely supernatural. So I think you're on to something that like giving them a Christian burial or whatever, like they can't rise out of hallowed ground or whatever, right? This is also, I think, the first time we've really had zombies as a group threat, except for like maybe the end of Black Moon or Revolt to the Zombies. But in those cases, they were a metaphor for like indigenous uprisings against colonialist powers. Yeah. Here, they're just zombies. Like they are threats because they're a group that will just keep coming and won't stop. And it's the thing that makes traditional Romero zombies threatening is like, Mm -hmm. yeah, on their own, they're like slow and you can just like bash them over the head or wave some fire at them and run away. You know, like they have a really easy time with these zombies for the most part, as long as they like outnumber them uh, and they have access to fire. But like once there's like fucking 10 of them on the deck of the ship, like it's it's a whack-a-mole situation and they like run out of fuel for fire and it's like oh fuck yeah i think like absolutely you're calling out all the right points the movie does a really good job of changing when and where the zombies become threatening Mm. um so that you don't just go like why aren't they just running away Mm -hmm. like it never gives you like a chance to kind of think like well why don't you just go to the crypt and burn them all Right. You know? Yeah. It, um. <laughs> it is pointed out that like Romero zombies, they're afraid of fire, which is a new thing for zombies, but like an old thing for like Frankenstein. Yeah. Movie monsters. But you're totally right. Like Grandma Peters calls out that they're afraid of fire because it's the only thing that can destroy them. So you you might think like, why not just fucking burn them? But you're right. The movie does a really good job of pacing itself so that you aren't left like pointing out these holes as you're mm-hmm. watching the movie. The first time that you really feel that threat of the swarm is when Jeff is underwater mm-hmm. and one sneaks up on him um, and he's fighting it off and then another comes and then his line gets dislocated. And the fact that, you know, he can't move very well because he's underwater, the zombies are moving a little slowly because they're underwater so everyone's kind of moving at the same speed um and he gets overtaken by them like in that way it really made the threat feel more tangible than just like a single guy being you know having two dudes come at him right and also like that sequence like the underwater sequences with the zombies um they even kind of call this out in the movie's dialogue but like what makes those scenes really clever is they are using a unique property of the undead in the sense that like the zombies don't need to breathe, man. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're in a situation where you're vulnerable because you're in like a diving suit and it's the only thing keeping you alive down here and they don't have the same vulnerability as that. So that makes you like super weak to them. And I think that was a really clever thing to do when you know, as you say, there's often an issue with zombies where it's like, yeah, man, just like run away or whatever. Yeah. Right? Like with mummies, you know, they made it a, a really interesting way of changing it from like the regular fear of mummies with these zombies, with it being underwater yeah. and having it be this form. The underwater scenes are really well done, um, mm-hmm. considering that they're all faked. Like there's no underwater photography going on here. It's the same stuff that they do at the end of the original Godzilla where like there's no underwater stuff going on at the end of that movie either. 
the actors are sort of moving slowly. They might even be shot in slow motion a little. They've got some like bubble machine attached to like the side of their helmets or something to make it look like bubbles are coming up. I will say, however, that the underwater scenes are the parts of the movie that feel the most sluggish. It's just, it seems to be really fucking hard for people to shoot underwater action scenes and not have them come across as like just the point in the movie where your movie just turns to molasses. Yeah, that's, I think that's something that every movie dealing with underwater stuff really struggles with like thunderball yes thunderball <laughs> is awful for it um creature from the black lagoon is one of the few examples i can name off the top of my head where it's like the underwater stuff is great because it's suspense not action right so speaking again about like the way that this is a slightly more like modern style of zombie compared to older movies is Just like with modern zombie movies, one of the elements of the plot is that like one of our cast is turned into a zombie Mm -hmm. and they're not turned halfway. It's not something that can be undone. It's not like the central dramatic core of the movie that like, oh, we have to get this person back to normal. It just happens. She's just killed and now she's a zombie and now the threat is coming from inside the house because (laughs) some like emotional idiot in the group like can't let go of their loved one who's become a zombie. Absolutely. And then I think another thing that you can really see is the visual of when the swarm of zombies is attacking the ship when they finally mm-hmm. have the diamonds and they're breaking into the cabin in the on the ship. Yeah. Um breaking through the glass and stuff like that. That's all very visually reminiscent of Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the thing here is that unlike past zombie movies the threat in the story isn't like oh we have to stop this person from turning that person into a zombie yeah the threat is the zombies themselves yeah which really wasn't the case in white zombie or i walked with a zombie or voodoo man or like any of these previous iterations like nobody really worried about the zombies the fear was getting turned into one yeah and the fact that the zombies can create themselves you know like they're like self-procreating yeah they're they are their own thing they have their own agenda and i think most significantly of all they're all white yeah right like like it's not like a thing as has been in the past where it's like oh being turned into a zombie is a thing that happens to black people wouldn't it be awful if it happened to a white person like that's what white zombie kind of is all about sure And that's sort of been the case ever since. Like, yes, we're still in like Africa and it's like there because in the 1950s, American audiences could buy that like weird curses and magic and shit still happened in Africa. Like there's even a really kind of yikes bit of dialogue at the start of the movie where Jan's like, gosh, it's so good that in the 10 years that I've been gone, they haven't like modernized or developed this place at all. It's just so much better being like, you know, jungle and mystery and Africa. And it's like, ugh. But regardless, the point is, is that not only are all these zombies white, but like that's not a thing that's drawn attention to. It's not like, oh, what a hideous fate to have happened. It's just like, yeah, they were cursed, so now they're zombies. Mm-hmm. Well, I do mention like a hideous fate that like their soul is in limbo. Yeah, but it's not because they're white. Yeah. It's not like, oh, this is extra bad because they're white. Like, Becoming a zombie is just a thing that can happen to anyone. Yeah, 
that being said, it does very much sanitize the racial history of voodoo and zombies as a relation to voodoo. But that was just going to be a thing in this movie going in. Um, Same with Voodoo Island from this year. We we talked about it in that episode, too. And if we're thinking of the long-term history of zombies as a movie monster, right? If, if we're not looking at it from a perspective of, well, zombies are a unique part of Haitian culture and should be like protected. Therefore, if we're thinking of it from the point of view of a, well, zombies are a cool movie monster and I want to keep using them. What eventually happens, you know, crystallized in night of the living dead, where zombies become totally removed absolutely from Haiti, from voodoo, from, uh, foreignness, right? Mm-hmm. They just come completely divorced from their cultural context is that was an evolution. I think that needed to happen for zombies to occupy the place they now do in pop culture. Sure. Like there's a reason why mummy movies aren't as popular as zombies, even though a mummy is just a zombie wearing bandages. And it's because like, Mummies are still intrinsically wrapped up in. <laughs> I see what you did there. Egyptian culture. And at the end of the day, they are really attached to Egyptian colonialism because their central deal is I'm here to kill grave robbers. And, you know, white people are the ones who are at risk for that. And so it's kind of uncomfortable. Like, mummy stuff is kind of uncomfortable to do now. And you have to, like, set it in the past for it to make sense and stuff. The zombie has become totally removed from Haiti. And so we don't have to think about like racism and we don't have to like bring in all of that baggage. If we want to do a zombie movie, it's just like, Mm -hmm. you know, this movie is, we've pointed out that there's no zombie master, that there's a curse that's mentioned, but that's it. So these zombies are like, one step along the road to the other big property of modern zombies, which is there's no explanation. Yeah. We just wake up one day and there's zombies. And that's something that I think had to happen for zombies to become a neutral monster Mm -hmm. in pop culture. I think that, yes, with all these points, zombies of Moritau really is a bit of that missing link. Um, it's also just like a pretty good showing for a zombie flick. Yeah, it's like pretty decently good for what it is, which is a 1950s B-movie. With it's- a pretty unique premise um, and also like pretty unique like history and the characters like Grandma Peters's history. You're totally right about pointing out the like Pirates of the Caribbean thing in that like both properties are definitely playing on maritime ghost stories yeah right the idea of like this crew that's going to come up from the sea from a wreckage and and fuck you up um and we're just applying the word zombie to that idea as like a way of having a word for uh, you know someone's risen from their grave mm-hmm. right yeah it's it's a good flick it's not a great flick like, I don't think this is like a lost classic. No, but it's very interesting. Yes. And I think it's 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 entertaining enough on its own that you don't have to watch it just because it's interesting. Yeah. Right? It's not it's not something where it's like, oh, well, this is only valid for historical 
purposes or whatever, right? So speaking of how it compares to other zombie flicks, do you want to move on to ranking? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Well, our highest ranked zombie movie is I Walked with a Zombie from 1943 at number six. I think we can both agree that Zombies of Moritau is not as good as that. No, Um, we're not going that high. (laughs) Um, The other movie that we kept bringing up is White Zombie. That is ranked at number 79. For me, when I was looking at a range, I started at White Zombie at number 79. And that's a pretty good horror movie. But it's bogged down with a lot of its own eccentricities of, you know, we want to do a little bit of a like Haitian Dracula because we got Bella Lugosi here. We want it to be a little bit of an homage to silent film. Um, so we, we're doing some unique things there. So with all of those trappings, it's, you know, I think you could have the discussion of whether Zombies of Moritau is better than White Zombie. Um, with that in mind, I kind of looked up and I knew that Zombies of Moritau was not going to go above El Fantasma del Convento at number 72, because um, that has a real mummy in it. Looking below White Zombie, I stopped around 82, 83. Number 82 is The Beast with Five Fingers, which is a really strong showing, and then it shoots itself in the foot with um, the comedy ending and being like, oh, just kidding. But wait, no. Oh, just kidding. In the hand. Shoots itself in the hand. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, good, good catch. Um, below Beast with Five Fingers is The Ghoul from 1933. The Ghoul is a very interesting movie, very early Karloff flick. It has really good visuals, but the story is lacking. I feel like Zombies of Moritau despite Moritau not actually being mentioned in the movie, has a bit more of a, a, an interesting or unique story to it. It's easier to sort of grasp the story because it really is just like an old-fashioned ghost story setup, whereas the ghoul is like a weird mix of like the mummy and the old dark house. Yeah. So my range was 72 to 83. Okay. My range was entirely below yours because I had a different starting point. Um, When I was thinking about where to look for this movie, um, I started looking at 148, which is Voodoo Island. So instead of starting at our highest ranked zombie movie, I started at, or, or the first zombie movie, White Zombie, I started at our most recent zombie movie. This was clearly better than Voodoo Island. Voodoo Island is not good. Yeah. Uh, above that, we have some other not good movies. So I kept looking up with the question being like, okay, what is Zombies of Moritau like definitely better than uh, versus like, where does it get some competition? And number 138 is The Unknown, which is a weird movie, very eccentric. But I think the eccentricities of The Unknown are what makes it a really unique story like it like you're not gonna see something like the unknown ever again (laughs) because nobody is gonna match like that todd browning lon cheney combo of bizarreness yeah um whereas like zombies of moritau like is more straightforward but in being more straightforward it sort of loses that unique flavor so i thought the unknown might be better uh so i made my floor 
number 139, between the unknown and the invisible ray. Looking for a ceiling, I started looking up, and initially, I was going to make my ceiling 116. I was like, this is definitely better than the Devil Doll, but, you know, Mystery of the Wax Museum is pretty good. Then I looked like a few spots above that and saw Voodoo Man, and I was like, oh no, this is definitely better than Voodoo Man. (laughs) And so I like kept going up, and I was going to stop below Curse of the Cat People, because Curse of the Cat People is a really good movie. And then a couple spots above that, I noticed there was like Corpse Vanishes and Mark of the Vampire, and I was like, oh no, this is definitely better than those, though. So I kept looking up more, and this kind of kept happening to me. Until I found our other Edward Kahn movie, The She-Creature, at number 93. And I was like, man, why did we rank The She-Creature so high? I couldn't really remember. And above that is Murders in the Rue Morgue, which is a real fucked up movie. Um, So I made my ceiling number 93, above The She-Creature, below Murders in the Rue Morgue. Okay. That makes the space between our ranges 83 to 93? So halfway through is 88, um, the 1919 Eerie Tales. Oh, my God. (laughs) How to compare these two very different movies. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been been a spell since we've seen Eerie Tales. On either side of these, of like Eerie Tales, the student of Prague, um, we have the man with nine lives. Mm-hmm. And Dr. X. So one of the reasons why I think White Zombie is better than Zombies of Moratau is a reason why I think Dr. X is better too, which is that what Zombies of Moratau is really missing is atmosphere. And it's really yeah. hard to like achieve atmosphere on like a B-movie budget, so I'll grant you that. But like it never feels like we're in Africa. That's true. Like we're just... In Southern California, we're in Africa, but like there are no black people in this movie at all. Um, like as unique and different it is for the zombies to all be white people, like it's just kind of weird that there's just no Africans in this movie set in Africa. Yeah, I think like you're definitely on to something that it's missing its atmosphere. And if there was one, maybe two things that I would change about the zombies, it is to make them decaying in some sort of way and to not have them go poof at the end right like have like put in a skeleton into the clothes yeah 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 they needed to like do the like thing that happens to Karloff at the end of the mummy where like they like decay rapidly and turn to dust and then like a skeleton and and you know then the skeleton like dissolves away or whatever right it needed to be something like that rather than just like poof Rather than just, yeah, like, disappearing, like, again, like a Jedi, the movie lacks atmosphere. And it could have been done in so many little ways. Like, for example, like, nobody sweats in this movie. Like, they're in Africa on the coast. And, like, you know, Mona could have been, like, covered in sweat. Mm -hmm. You know, you could have really felt the heat. Like, that was something that Black Moon actually did really well way back in the 1930s yeah and and in addition to not having very good atmosphere as much as zombies moratow does some really cool stuff and does some good horror work throughout the visuals here are not great you know i mean we didn't watch the best quality version of this movie that is out there like 
So the copy we were watching was a little murky, but there was still like nothing really visually that stood out to me here. Yeah. Whereas Dr. X is like all atmosphere and visuals. Yeah. I think like looking in this area, all these movies have really powerful atmosphere, even to the point where Murders in the Room Morgue were willing to forgive the singing college students. Yeah. The she creature doesn't. Yeah. Not really. Like it tries, but not really. So I'm going to propose we put Zombies of Moratau above the she creature, but below Murders in the Room Morgue. Cool. I'm good with that. Okay. So entering the list at the new number 93, right above the last Edward Elkon movie we saw, is going to go Zombies of Moratau from 1957. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box, you can email us at screamscenepodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can find the show through subscribing to our RSS feed. And if you want to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review uh, on the service that you listen to the show on. You can also help the show out by spreading word of it uh, yourself. Spreading the spooky word. Right. Uh, Either online, through social media, or in real life. Tell your friends. Tell your family, tell your pharmacist, listen to Scream Scene. If you really want to help us out in a big way, you can head over to patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can sign up to be a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Our patrons help us pay the show's hosting fees, help us take the time to do the research, watch the movies, uh, put the effort into doing the editing and post work, that goes into each and every episode. It also really helps with having the extra cash to like acquire some of these movies, um, pay to rent them, get the DVD box sets that some of them are like only available as part of um, that kind of thing. Um, It's a lot easier to like justify the expense. Yes. When we've got strong Patreon support. Plus we are only $5 away from hitting our first milestone on Patreon. Uh, Once we hit $150 a month, we will start doing a bonus extra episode on horror-adjacent movies. Right, so, like, we might watch Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, which we're definitely not watching for the main show. But I'd be into watching it. Mono's pretty hot, so... Yeah, I mean, that's the big appeal. Um, She plays a socialite who gets made big... Um, who <laughs> I don't know the methodology involved, but um, her husband is cheating on her. So oh, like what an asshole, right? So like the the climactic scene of her being big and chasing through the city, you know, like King Kong looking for Fay Ray, is her trying to find her cheating husband and like get after him. Oh my god! Yeah. Okay, I do want to see this, folks. If you sign up at patreoncom podcast, you can help us watch Fifty Foot Woman. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, I mean, I kind of gave it away, but we're watching the bottom half of the double bill, The Man Who Turned to Stone. Yeah, I'm imagining, like, Medusa stuff. 
Yeah, I have no idea at all what the movie's about, so we will find out next week. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.